or they can stay in for Bill's 30-minute sermon. <clears throat> All of a sudden, you didn't catch that online, but there was a mad rush for the back right then. What a joy it is to be together. What a blessing to be able to sing these great songs and hymns and to think 10,000 years and then forevermore uh, we'll be singing and praising our great God. Uh, 10,000 reasons and more to do exactly that. What a great blessing it is to gather today with all who are here in person. Great blessing to gather with all of our brothers and sisters worshiping with us. Uh, online. What a blessing God has been to us over these past months and continues to be every single day that we meet and live today. The world is trying to squeeze the Christian and the church into its mold. The J.B. Phillips translation of the Bible is uh, one that was popular uh, a good while back. And it doesn't get a lot of press these days, and I have never used it at length, I have to say. But there's no version I like better in the translation of Romans 12, verse 2. The world is trying to squeeze the Christian and the church into its mold. And scripture says, don't let it happen. Don't let it happen. How does it do that, Bill? Well, I saw a message on Twitter a while back um, referring to a, an article by Tim Keller, a wonderful speaker and uh, uh, teacher and author about preaching and, and teaching God's message in the church. And, uh, and he, he started a project, and it was this. I'm gathering a list of propositions the culture uses to catechize our children. He's brought several of those in. The man who was quoting him suggested a few others. I've added a few myself. But see if you've ever heard these statements. All ice cream is as good as bluebell. That is the world trying to squeeze you into its mold. Okay, well, that one's a little bit more flippant. Okay, a lot more flippant. Uh, Not any less true, perhaps, but uh, that gives you an idea of what this list is going to have. Follow your heart. Related, follow your dreams. And you're thinking, Bill, that's a great motto. Follow your heart. Is it? Is it? Sometimes our hearts are not very good standards of judgment on what is right and what is wrong. But what our world tries to convince us of is if you're following your heart related, if you follow your dreams, then that's good. One that's related to that is be true to yourself. And all of those are great, provided what your heart is saying, what your dreams are, what inside of you, you believe is true, is what God says of all of those things. Because that's not always the case. We all worship the same God, 
or there are many roads that lead to God. And those things sound good, especially in a pluralistic democratic republic that legally encourages worship of any God, all gods, or no God. And that's perhaps as it should be in a secular democratic republic. But that doesn't mean it's right. We don't all worship the same God, and there are not many roads that lead to God. There is one road that leads to God. Jesus said that exact thing in John 14, verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one road to God, and it's through Jesus Christ. That's not a very popular statement in our culture, in our society. And I don't believe I would want law to specify that. But we're not talking about American law today. And we won't be talking about American law in the rest of this series in Romans 12 through 16. And it will make us very uncomfortable. I am free to do what I want as long as I don't hurt anyone else. Well, again, in a secular republic, that might be just fine. But that doesn't mean that's okay with God. Because that's not the only question. Does this hurt anyone else? That is an important question. It's just not the only one. Keep your religious views to yourself. We're hearing that more and more these days. And a very scary thing in the research that Barna and others are showing is that especially in younger adults, say 40 and under, this is especially important. Do not evangelize. Do not proselytize. Do not share your religious views with someone else. That's distressing. Or this one, you do you. (laughs) You do you. And I think in some cases, that's absolutely just fine, but not all. You do you and I'll do me and we'll both be right. We'll both be okay. The question is, will we both be faithful? Or this one, love is love. Related to that, that's just how I'm wired. And I've also heard uh, celebrities say, you don't choose who you love. A person in this country should have the right to love and marry anyone they choose. And so again, I'm not talking about American law here. Maybe in American law, that, that should be true. I don't know. But that's not God's law. And that may be how you're wired. For example, you want to be in a same-sex relationship and you want to marry someone of the same sex. And again, that is American law right now. But the truth is, that may be 
you may have a same-sex attraction, but that doesn't make it right, and that doesn't give you permission to act on it. And that's just how I'm wired. Is not a reason to say God justifies my action. This book is filled, filled with examples of individuals who did not do God's will, but instead they did what they wanted to do. Whether we're wired to do it or not is a question of how am I tempted? Not everyone is tempted with same-sex sexual relations, but some are. It doesn't justify their actions. Not everyone is tempted with uh, the temptation to lie or to commit adultery in a heterosexual relationship. All of those things are wrong. Not everyone is tempted to gossip. But some are, and it doesn't make it right for them. Not everyone is tempted to lose their temper, to fly off the handle, to say things they shouldn't say. But some are. It doesn't justify them doing that. It simply says, this is how Satan is going to get to me. But to say, that's just how I'm wired, is to say, you'll just have to accept my sin. I'm not required to grow or to change or to live righteously. The Bible isn't the truth, only Jesus is. You've heard that different ways probably. Jesus I like, the church not so much, the Bible definitely not. Well, why not? Because it tells me to do things I don't want to do. And it tells me I can't do things that I want to do. And so I reject it. Jesus loves me as I am and accepts me as I am and will take me to heaven as I am. And yes, Jesus loves us as we are. Yes, Jesus accepts us as we are. No, Jesus will not take us to heaven no matter how we are and how we live. There's too many statements of Jesus that say exactly the opposite. Such as Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. A lot of people are going to think they're going. But because they lived selfishly instead of faithfully, I will tell them, depart from me. I never knew you. How about this one? Well, that's your truth, Bill. That's your truth. You have your truth. I have my truth. Let's live according to our truths. Very similar to be true to yourself. That's your truth. That one's very popular these days. Okay, Bill, you believe some of those things are wrong, but that's your truth. It's not my truth. And again, in this country, we likely have the right to live either way, legally. But that doesn't make it right in the eyes of God. And as the church, as Christians, what we're asking in Romans 12 through 16 is what is right in the eyes of God. And that's how we should live. One more And I've heard this one my whole 
preaching career. God just wants me to be what? Happy. God just wants me to be happy. Please show me that. Show me that. Show me that. Because that is a human statement. In many ways, that is an American statement. To be able to chase your dreams, whatever it is, and accomplish them. To be able to do whatever it takes to make you happy. Now, in this moment, just you. When in reality, what scripture is concerned with, what God is concerned with, is what brings fulfillment for eternity. Not just for you, but for everyone. And so that means that sometimes I go through some things that don't make me happy. (laughs) That I might choose a different route because it's right and because it's helpful for me for eternity's perspective, not just how I feel in this moment right now. And it also is concerned about others around me and not just me. Those are the things that God is ultimately concerned with. Those are the things, the reasons why God sent his son to do what did not make him happy. Leave heaven, live a very difficult life, be rejected and forsaken by the people he was closest to, be accused of things he never did and be killed on the cross for them. That did not make Jesus happy. But he was obedient and faithful. And in the end was at peace. The world is trying to squeeze the Christian and the church into its mold. For the Christian, the first question is, what is God's will? That should be our first question. Not what makes me happy. Not what do I feel like doing. Not even what does my heart say. And so with apologies to one of my favorite channels on cable, the Hallmark Channel, and it is, and I love their movies. Follow your heart. What does your heart say is not the first question. (laughs) Because you can't trust your heart every time. And that's the truth. Sometimes our heart leads us into what we feel like is going to make us happy at this moment. Rather than causing us to consider what is God's will? What does God want for me right now in this moment? Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing the message of Christ. Jesus prayed in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. He was commended by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 because he said, quoting the Old Testament, I have come to do your will, O God. I mentioned Matthew 7 earlier and that great passage in James 4 that says, look, you can make all the plans you want, but you need to ask this question first. What is God's will? If it's the Lord's will, I'll do this. And that means more than just some flippant statement that, 
I'll go here or there, or we'll go out to eat, or we'll, I'll come by and see you if it's the Lord's will. It's a nice thing to say that, but what the passage in James 4 is saying, have you considered what is God's will? And you say, well, Bill, how in the world do I know that? If you're asking that question, you haven't read this book. And if you haven't read this book, you don't know what God's will is. You know what you feel like God's will is. You know what the culture says is God's will. You may even know what the preacher says is God's will, but you don't know what God's will is until you read and study this book because it is the inspired and authoritative word of God and that's the only place you can find that. The only place. With chapter 12, we reach a transition point in the book of Romans. Romans 1 through 11 is more in the indicative and chapters 12 through 16 are more in the imperative. And for many of us, we couldn't wait to get to the imperative. We love the commands. We get very uncomfortable with the indicative, but you see, Paul has spent 11 chapters talking about the indicative and what he's going to say in the very first words of Romans 12 verse 1 is because of the indicative, because of God's tremendous, incredible blessings, this is how we're to live, imperative. He doesn't start with the imperative. We do. We don't set the groundwork of what he does in Romans chapter one when he talks about that gospel that is what allows us to receive the righteousness of God. We don't do what he says in Romans two and three and says, look, Gentiles, Jews, it doesn't matter. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so all can receive the righteousness that comes from God in the same way by faith. Abraham received it by faith. David received it by faith. We struggle with our flesh versus spirit, Romans 7 verses 8. But the spirit wins if we'll let it. In Romans 9 through 11, Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. Everyone who confesses from their heart with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and responds in faithful obedience, they will be saved Ephesians starts out that way Galatians starts out that way even the 10 commandments start out that way in Exodus 20 I am the God who brought you out of Egyptian bondage now you shall have no other gods before me you shall not make of yourself any graven image and on and on and on it doesn't start with the commandment it starts with the blessing. And that's how Romans starts, and that's how Ephesians starts with chapters 1 through 3, before it gets to the imperatives of chapters 4 through 6. That's how Galatians starts for four and a half chapters. (laughs) Before you get to chapter 5, verse 13, and it says, this is how you live according to the Spirit. And so let's talk about being living sacrifices, righteousness, living today. First of all, offering ourselves as living sacrifices. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, based on chapters 1 through 11, and this righteousness of God that comes by faith, and not by me checking all the boxes, but by trusting in Jesus Christ and faithful obedience of faith, 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and spiritual proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the general statement that introduces the rest of the chapters. Generally, what are we supposed to do as children of God by faith in Christ Jesus? We are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We are to live for God. We are to live for Christ. And in the remainder, starting with the verses that follow that we'll look at today, he gets specific, and those are examples But he says the statement is you live your life as a sacrifice to Jesus Christ. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give what? Myself away. It's all that I can do. I give everything, God, everything. That's Romans 12, verse 1. In view of God's mercies, therefore, offer up your bodies as living sacrifices. And so everything we do and everything we say is an act of worship before God. It's not an act of direct worship like we're doing right here necessarily. It's not an act of corporate direct worship like we're doing here. You might have an act of worship where you're praying to God by yourself. That's still worship. And it's direct, but it's individual But when you are faithful to your husband or your wife, rather than letting the world squeeze you into its mold and committing adultery, that is an act of worship. You live that way, not because you are faithful to your spouse. You live that way, first of all, because you are faithful to your God. And because your first and primary desire is to be faithful to your God, then you say no to the temptations that will destroy that relationship. And in its wake, it will destroy the relationship with your family. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. That means you don't do everything that you really want to do. And that means you may be doing some things that you don't really want to do that are not high on your priority list, but because they're high on God's priority list, you do them. Why? Because you have presented your body as a living sacrifice. The worship terms are everywhere in these verses. Offering up your bodies as living sacrifices, the true and proper spiritual worship. It's very much like the Jews would bring a lamb and offer it up or a bull or a calf as a sacrifice and it would die on that altar. We bring ourselves, our bodies, but as living sacrifices. Luke 9, Jesus says, unless you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, then you're not gonna be my disciple. If you want to gain the whole world but lose your soul, what value is that? If you're going to be faithful to me, then you've got to put me first. I am crucified with Christ, Paul said in Galatians 2.20. Nevertheless, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. 
For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, he said in jail in Philippians chapter 1. We live a life of love because Christ has loved us, Ephesians 5. Everything we say and everything we do is done to honor Jesus Christ with gratitude in our hearts to God through him, Colossians 3 verse 17. We offer up the fruit of our lips in direct praise to God, Hebrews 13, verse 15. And then we live a life of serving others and doing what is good, Hebrews 13, verse 16, direct and indirect worship. We do not conform to this world. We don't let the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life get in the way of our relationship with God. But sometimes those things seem so strong. And our culture is telling us you need to give in to those things in order to be happy. No one should tell you, you can't do that. And yet scripture does. The world is surprised, 1 Peter 4, when we have these values. The world can't believe that you're not just going out doing whatever it takes to make you happy. The world can't believe that you're following your heart, that you would be willing to sacrifice some things you want because you believe it's not what God wants. But you see, that's what Romans 12 verse 1 says. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And we're all about that verse until we have to give something up. (laughs) We're all okay with that until it costs me something. And yet so much of the Old Testament and the New Testament call us to do exactly that. We are called for transformation, not conformity. And there's a difference. Transformation versus conformity. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Instead, what, Paul? Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does that mean, Paul? That means get your mind in the word of God. How do you renew your mind? You renew your mind the same way Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. That is exactly how we do that. We're all about being living sacrifices until it means we don't get to do what we want to do or we're called to do something that we really don't want to do. And Paul from here on out is going to talk about several different examples of that. And some of them we're going to like and some of them we're going to hate. The first one is in verses 3 through 8. Offering our gifts to build up the church. And it's interesting to me that this is the very first one that he opens up with. You see, the church at Rome was a divided church. They had Jewish Christians, they had Gentile Christians... They had people that all their lives had lived according to the law of Moses. They had people who all their lives and for generations had opposed the ones who lived by the law of Moses. They had people who had this doctrinal view, people who had that doctrinal view, and yet they were all right there together in the same church in the capital city of the empire. And 
And so Paul tells them this in Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now you look at a list like that and you say, Bill, we should all be involved in all of those things. And that's the truth. But sometimes there are people who have a special gift in that area. And not everybody has that gift. And so Paul says, use that to build up the church reminds us of what he says in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and in Ephesians 4 and in 1 Peter 4 that the Apostle Peter shares. That these gifts come from God. It's God who gave you that gift. And it's also God who gave that other person their gift. And he gave it for the same reason, to build up the church. So use it for that purpose. In Romans 12, he makes a big point. uh, I mean, in 1 Corinthians 12, he makes a big point saying, look, Just because you don't have their gift doesn't mean that you're inferior to them. And just because they don't have your gift, it doesn't mean that you're better than they are. God has done this exactly like he wants it. And we're grateful. You know, the diversity of the church is one of our biggest challenges. It threatens our unity. It can threaten our effectiveness. But at the same time, our diversity is one of our greatest strengths. Because God has done this. He has prepared us so that we're not all alike. And sometimes that difference goes a little bit like this, but that's okay. Because that's what happens when people are together. Whether you're talking about a husband and wife, parents and children, college roommates, apartment, whatever it is, we're different. And when there's different, there's some tension and that's okay. We work through it. But God has done this so that we can reach everybody in every way. And what a great blessing that is is. Danny shared around the table in that wonderful message that we need to live in this moment. And in this moment, I have to ask myself, God, what are you calling on me to do? How have you gifted me and prepared me to help and to serve? And so that great statement in verse five, each member belongs to all the others. You say, well, I don't think that's right. I don't belong to anybody. Well, that's very American. This is not very Christian. Because the Christian message is you do belong to somebody. You belong to God, first of all, and you belong to everyone else here. And so your first response is not what helps me. Your first response is what is faithful to God. And in doing that, what will help my neighbor? What will help my brother or my sister? Why? Because that's what it means to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. You see, we're all about doing that until we have to sing somebody else's song in church because it builds them up but does nothing for me. We're all about doing that except when it says that I need to 
break out of my comfort zone and come and be involved in helping share food with the needy because we need help on our turn on caring kitchen night or they need help in that nursery or they need help in whatever the ministry is. Well, I'm okay with offering my body as a living sacrifice until I have to do something that I really don't want to do. (laughs) And yeah, it might benefit somebody else, but really I'm not as concerned about somebody else as I am about me, so let's do it my way. Great Frank Sinatra song. (laughs) Not so great theology. Are you prepared to offer your body as a living sacrifice? Are you prepared to not get your way? Because that's what he's going to talk about for the next four chapters. Yay! And one of the first ones he's going to do is he's going to say, you may hate the political authorities that are there right now. You may hate the civil authorities. They may even be trying to kill you, but guess what? You better respect them. Because you don't serve them, you serve God. And that's not a very popular message. But that's what it means to offer your body as a living sacrifice. By the way, that passage of scripture in Romans 13 pertains no matter who won the last election. So if you're thinking, I don't have a problem with that at all right now, Bill. Well, did you have a problem with it in the previous four years? Yeah, I can't wait to preach that lesson. (laughs) Different functions, but one purpose, to glorify God by building up the church and being his witnesses in the world. I want to be Jesus' disciple. And I hear him saying in Luke 9, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And I'm all about doing that unless I have to deny myself or take up my cross. That's what he's told us to do. That's what he did. So as we conclude this important passage today, It is one thing to say that you would die for Jesus. But will you live for him? I have a feeling that any of us, if we were to say, you know, if called upon, if it became illegal in this country to worship and serve God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, I would risk my life rather than not do that. And I appreciate you saying that very much. What are you risking now? to do his will on a much lower scale? What are you giving up in your life because you know it violates the teaching of this book? Are you willing to sacrifice some of the things that you selfishly want because it would help somebody else? Are you willing to do that? I dare say if you're not willing to do that, would you really be given, be willing to give up your physical life? When you can't even give up your favorite song or your favorite pew, when you can't even wear a name tag because it's too cumbersome and burdensome and everyone should know me anyway, thank you, dear shepherd David Hammond, for saying that. I'm so glad I wore mine today. (laughs) Whew, I would have appreciated a heads up, brother, but that's okay. 
yeah, we're going to forget sometimes, but if our main concern is helping someone else that sees me that may not be that familiar with my name just yet, then I'll do this for them rather than refusing to do it because I don't want to. I don't want to. It is one thing to say that you would die for Jesus, but will you live for him? Or will you allow the world to squeeze you into its mold? Will you be transformed, not conformed? Will you accept the indicative, the blessing of God, and the imperative, the command of God? We'll close our service today. Perfect choice for today, Gary. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Is it? Is it? Because if you're acting selfishly, if you're living selfishly, if you're doing what you want rather than what God's want, God wants, then this world is your home. That transformation comes by constantly renewing our minds through the study of God's word and the daily recommitment to doing God's will. Living for Jesus means more than simply appreciating the blessings his death has provided, the indicative. It also means doing what he calls us to do, the imperative, the commands. This is how you are to live as my people, God says. And the imperatives in Romans are not the ones we typically are good at doing. We hear that imperative in a general sense in verses 1 and 2, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds rather than conforming to the values and lifestyles of this world. We hear that imperative in verses 3 through 8, calling on us, though they were quite different and with different gifts and different likes and different personalities and different views, calling on us to live and work in unity, mutual respect, love, and peace. As we look next week and the weeks that follow at the passages that we're going to look at, we will hear the specific call to love others in specific, practical ways. Today, we hear the call not to die for Jesus, but to live for him. To offer our bodies, our lives, as living sacrifices. To do what is right, even though it's hard to do what is right, even though it's not what we really want to do. To follow the heart of God rather than to follow my heart. Today, we hear the call to share together our common purpose as one church, to recognize that in Christ, we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. Today, we hear the call to trust and obey. If we can help you do that this morning, come as we stand, sing this great, great hymn.